You are listening to the Critical Mass Radio Show, Orange County's business talk show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies with your host, Richard Franzi. Welcome to this episode of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. Boy, do we have a great show for you today. Our first guest is Martin Stabas. He is the director at the Beister Institute at the University of California, San Diego. I'll be getting to him in just one minute. You know, this show is brought to you by our advertiser, Center Club, Decision Toolbox, MBN Design, SunUp Group, and we support various Orange County nonprofit organizations. To learn more uh, or you want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn as Richard, Rick, R-I-C, Franzi. CEO Peer Groups is my Twitter handle. We have 7,000 followers on our Twitter feed. And uh, in your favorite podcasting software, type in these four words, Critical Mass Radio Show, and you'll get every weekly episode that beams live here on octalkradio.net. And, of course, don't miss our YouTube channel. It's simple to find. It's Richard Franzi, F-R-A-N-Z-I. Well, many of you may remember, if you're loyal listeners, that I've had Martin Stabas on our show before, and I just had the pleasure of spending three days last week at a training program at Beister Institute, and I said, Martin, why don't you come on the show and let's, let's talk about some common questions that folks have about ESOPs, business owners and CEOs. So, Martin, welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show. Well, thanks a lot, Rick. Great to be with you again. It's good to have you back. Let's start by, I mentioned Beister Institute. Can you discuss and maybe highlight your institute for those that may not be familiar with it? Sure. It's a little bit of an unusual deal here, but I'll give you the background. The group was originally started back in 1986 by a fellow named Bob Beister, hence the name Beister Institute. Uh, he was quite a successful entrepreneur. He was the founder of a company here in San Diego called SAIC, which he started right in the La Jolla area, and 30 years later it was a Fortune 500 company, about number 278 on that list, over 40,000 employees globally. So it was quite a phenomenal success as a company. Uh, he was a rookie entrepreneur. He said uh, the thing that really made the difference was that he made sure that everybody who worked there and made a meaningful contribution to the growth and the value of the company uh, was able to share in that value through stock ownership. So he would award stock to people and uh, really transform that company. That's what made it so successful. So we uh, have carved out a niche along the way. He got so many uh, requests for advice on this area that he couldn't handle it personally. He said, I'll start an institute and then those people at my institute can field these inquiries, and that's what we're still here to do today is to help business leaders who are interested in this employee stock ownership stuff. How does it work? How would they use it intelligently? Uh, along the way, we went from being an independent uh, nonprofit institute to merging into the business school here at UC San Diego. So we are actually part of the business school, uh, but we operate mainly as a as sort of a hybrid of a consulting operation and also some educational programs. As you mentioned, Rick, we teach some classes for people. And they are excellent classes. I had the pleasure of attending three various classes that were offered this year, and um, I would recommend, we'll give the website here later in the interview, but I would certainly recommend anyone who's considering an ESOP or is an ESOP and would like to take the performance of the employee ownership model to the next level to look at the education and coursework that is offered by the Beister Institute. You and I collaborated. We just put together some what I think are, are common questions uh, that business owners and CEOs might have about um, various aspects of ESOP programs. So I'm just going to give you these questions and let's have a conversation about them. The first one is the perception that the valuation of the business, the values, are conservative as it relates to an ESOP versus maybe being uh, on the market and selling your business as a strategic sale or, or to a, a financial investor. So the values are conservative. And, and the reason that some business owners think of that is because you have this role of a fiduciary and it's for fiduciary reasons that you're transferring the wealth. So can can you can you address the perception that values are conservative on an ESOP versus an open market sale? Sure. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of something I think it may have been Mark Twain who said uh, once, who said something about, it's not what these folks don't know that worries me, it's what they think they know that just ain't so. So this is one of those areas where uh, there's often some misinformation out there that just, just, just ain't so. And the reality is that, generally speaking, uh, valuations are, are no different for, for an ESOP than anything else, uh, any other purpose. After all, the way that a uh, sale to an ESOP is structured, and, of course, the idea of an ESOP is that an owner can sell any amount of the stock they wish to to an ESOP, whether it's 10 percent, 20 percent, 50 percent, the entire company, whatever they'd like to do, they sell it to an ESOP. How is that priced? The rules require that you hire 
a professional business appraiser, and you basically ask him one simple question. Go out and study the market and study my company and tell me if we put this company up for sale and to the general investing world out there, all the private equity firms, everybody notifying this company is for sale, what price do you think we would fetch for this company? And the appraiser goes out and does his homework and comes back and says, this is, this is the price uh, that you'd probably fetch. And that's what the ESOP is going to pay. Now, the only exception, the only place where you might, you know, have some, uh, you know, kernel of truth to the claim that you might not get top dollar every case is that the company is going to be valued on a continuing standalone basis. In other words, any other investor out there is going to buy the company and take it over and run it. That's what they would pay. Now, there are cases where a, a seller might get what they call a synergistic premium above and beyond what the company is worth standing on its own if this company is merged into a, a larger company that really needs your particular company. Maybe it's a hole in their geographic footprint or a product line that's going to really be super compatible with theirs and they'll be able to cross-sell and it can produce benefits far above what the company really generates on its own, then occasionally you will, you will get this, what they call the synergistic premium, and you're not going to get that with an ESOP. But I'd say two things about that. One is that it's not all that common. Otherwise, it would be the normal fair market value. We talk about this as an exception, so you can't really expect to find that. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, even if you do find it, there's an interesting study that was done, and it looked at the unique tax benefits you get from an ESOP, which you don't get from uh, if you sell to anyone else. And it said, which would be better? Assuming you did get a, an offer for a synergistic premium, is that more valuable than the unique tax savings you get with the ESOP, or is the tax savings more valuable? And they found that under the current tax rates, unlike uh, back before 2013 when the capital gains rates were ultra-low, the tax benefits were worth less. Under current tax rates, they found that the majority of the time, about two-thirds of the time, depending on the industry and the deal, people are actually going to come out better on an after-tax basis by selling to an ESOP than by even accepting a synergistic premium because, as we'll probably get a chance to discuss later, the pricing would have to be well over 50% higher with, uh, with a non-ESOP. In other words, if you could sell for $10 million to an ESOP, somebody else would have to offer you almost $16 million for you to come out equal to what the ESOP would pay you on an after-tax basis. So you're really unlikely to do better without the ESOP. And in fact, I think the majority of the time it's just the reverse. On an after-tax basis, you're probably going to walk away with more by selling to an ESOP. So I'm talking with Martin Stabas. He is the director of the Beister Institute at the University of California at San Diego campus. And, and one of the phrases that I heard you say and from my training earlier this year, I think is a, it kind of is the key to that answer is fair market value. So the, the issue is, are we creating a fair market value for this uh, company in its sale? Right, and okay. we have an arm's length independent professional who determines that. Okay, all right. Let's. Um, I've got another question for you, and, and my engineer tells me I have a handful of minutes, maybe two minutes until the break. So I don't know if you can answer this one in two minutes or not. Hopefully, you can, Martin Stabas. There is a sense that once you successfully uh, um, create an ESOP of your company, there are ongoing appraisal and administrative costs that are required based on that business model and that those can be significant to the relative to the performance and financial performance of the company. Can you address that in two minutes? Sure, easily. There are really just two ongoing costs. You will have those costs. One is that you are required to have the original appraisal updated. Uh, so annually you get an update on that. It's not generally as expensive as the original uh, valuation where the appraiser has to learn all about your company. You come, have him come back a year later, he already sort of has a template of your company, has a general idea, just updates some things. And then you'll have what they call a third-party administrator, like you usually have for a 401k plan or other kinds of plans like that, that does all the record-keeping, files the annual statements with the IRS and participant statements, all that administrative stuff they do, and they charge on sort of a per-head basis pretty much, so it depends how many employees you have. But generally speaking, uh, those costs, uh, they may range, depending on the size of your company, from you know, as little as uh, you know, twelve to 15000 maybe 25000 a year for quite a large company with uh, you know, 150, 200 employees or something. Uh, those are, costs are going to be dwarfed by the tax savings that this generates. I've never yet seen anybody who looked at this thoroughly and said, you know what, this all makes sense, except if it weren't for those dark administrative costs, I'm not going to do the deal because of that. I've never seen that. They just don't rise to enough significance. Right, and one thing, and I'm not going to be able to get into it right now, but we'll get into it when, I, when we come back, is that given an ESOP that is a 
full ESOP that is an S-corp, there's a significant tax advantage to that corporate structure over another structure. I think that's when you said tax benefits, you were, you're alluding to that, not the tax benefits of the seller from the first transaction, right? Well, all, all of these benefits, the, the, the whole range, and that's, okay. that's the whole subject we'll get into. Yeah. Okay, yeah, which is uh, not only can you sell your business tax, virtually tax-free, but you can create a business that doesn't pay tax at, at, at yeah. either into, into, into the future. So um, we're talking with Martin Stavas, who's the uh, director at the Beister Institute. We're going to take our first commercial break here on Critical Mass. I'm going to come back with this question, so be thinking about it, Martin, during the break. Um, that ESOPs are a good strategy as an exit for the primary owner, you know, the first time, but if there are minority owners of the business, it can be difficult for them to exit the business after the ESOP is up and running. So uh, for those of you who are interested in this conversation, don't go anywhere because Martin's going to answer that question as soon as we get back from these commercials. Are you looking for your successor? Someone as dedicated and experienced in their field as you? Executives Unlimited delivers the top executive talent you need for your company's long-term success. 98% of our clients re-engage us for additional hires, and over 90% of the executives placed by us since 2007 are still in their positions or have been promoted. That's twice the industry's average retention rate. How do we do this? Dedication. Executives Unlimited believe success isn't success until it's long-term. Call us to invest in your long-term success. 562-627-3800 or visit us at executivesunlimited.com. Let our long-term success leverage yours. If you are an Orange County business executive, this message is for you. Do you ever feel isolated with no place to turn for advice or feedback? Who holds you accountable to your commitments in your company? Where do you find the right resources to help you and your company grow? If you have these questions, then Critical Mass for Business might be the answer for you. Critical Mass for Business is committed to helping you make better decisions. These are groups of peers running businesses just like you, providing a great sound board to test ideas and concepts, review plan and goals, and present issues and opportunities for discussion. The result is improved strategy, accountability, people, and execution skills. If you are interested in learning more, go to www.criticalmassforbusiness.com and learn more about our executive peer group. that over 73% of consumer packaged goods and retail products fail miserably within their first year? Why? Because they find themselves in the pit of unawareness. You don't want to go there. Call me and I'll make sure that your packaging gets noticed. You know how I know? Because I'm the founder and creative director of MBN Design. We're one of Orange County's most established and trusted design firms. With over 20 years of experience, I can ensure that your brand will always stay new. Ask me how our packaging sold millions in months or see for yourself other success stories on our website at www.mbndesign.com. We're MBN because we're making brands new. Call 714-458-8701 and talk to me, Hector Garcia. That's myself. 714-458-8701. I'll be waiting for your call. And welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. All of our shows can be heard anytime on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, several hundred former guest websites whose CEOs were on our show. You know, each month we reach an audience of over 10,000 business executives with our live broadcasts and our podcasts. If you're have in your favorite podcasting software, simply type in Critical Mass Radio Show, and you can subscribe and get our weekly shows that we stream live here on octalkradio.net. Uh, this segment, we're talking with Martin Stavas. He is the director of the Beister Institute at California State University at San Diego. I'm sorry, at UC University of California, San Diego. Sorry about that, not Cal State, UC. And we're talking about all things ESOPs. And before the break, I said, you know, there is a perception that it's a good exit strategy for the original owner, but it may trap the subsequent owners and make it difficult for them to exit. What is your experience working with ESOPs? Right. Uh, there's really not much of a problem with that. I think from a financial perspective, there's really no difference from the second owner. I suppose, you know, if you take the example of a company that was started by two guys back 30 years ago and they're 
one of them just wants to get retire now, and then the next, second one says, "Are you retire now?" And then in a few years, if I want to exit the same way, am I going to be able to exit with the ESOP? Uh, generally speaking, there really isn't a problem financially. It's the same thing that goes on. The one issue that might come up, and this is an issue regardless of whether you're selling to an ESOP or selling to anyone else, is the question of leadership of the company, the, of the management and leadership talent. Um, I mean, after all, you take the case of a simple case of, say, one one entrepreneur who's been very successful, but he's the rainmaker that really makes this whole thing run and has all the client contacts and all the key knowledge, and he decides he wants to retire and says, hey, you want to buy my company because I want to retire and leave, and potential buyer says, hey, wait a minute, uh, you know, your company's been making lots of great money, but you know, if you're not going to be part of it any longer, uh, I'm not sure this company's going to be very successful anymore without you here. So that's an issue for anybody who's trying to leave a company. So if that were to come up in an ESOP situation, as I say, it'd be nothing to do with the ESOP. It's simply a matter of if the key founders are the key rainmakers and they want to get out. You know, maybe when only one of them was leaving, people said, "Well, the other one is still, uh, you know, has all the experience and they'll still work well." But if the second one wants to leave, uh, what's going to what's going to be left behind? But once again, that's not really an issue unique to ESOPs. It's just the nature of that structure. And in fact, the ESOPs often work a great deal better because ESOPs work very well for sort of a staged sort of gradual exit so that it gives um, the original owners a chance to really kind of mentor a successor generation of leadership and management, uh, delegate responsibilities to them over a period of just a few years, uh, get them more and more experienced, let them take over. And uh, once it's clear the, the company's operating well, uh, they should be able to exit you know, quite easily. So uh, it's not generally a problem I seek. I mean, it very much uh, ex- ex- except for that case where they want to suddenly just get out without any time to build up a successor management team. And we're, we're talking with Martin Stavis, who's the director of the Beister Institute. I've got three more questions that I'd love to get uh, you to answer, and I have about seven, eight minutes to do it. So okay. uh, can we do that? We'll do them quick. Yeah. All right. So pe- people believe, and I've heard it said, that ESOPs are a great motivator when the business value is building and everything's positive. But when the business value turns, maybe, you know, the economy softens, and we do have recessions, and business isn't always going up in a straight line, that the the ownership is actually is a kind of crumbles. The motivation of ownership sort of goes away, and it actually maybe makes it harder to lead an organization where you have even more disgruntled employees because now they're owners and they're seeing not only their company at risk, but their net worth because of the, the amount of money they have in, invested in stock. What is your experience with an ownership model in bad times? Yeah, and my experience is actually uh, exactly the reverse, and it's not just my experience, but interestingly enough, there is a research study that was just released just a couple of months ago and studied uh, companies with ESOPs during this last major uh, recession. And what it found was that these companies with ESOPs were four times more likely to survive the recession, or said another way, the rate of bankruptcy among ESOP companies was only 25% of the rate of of bankruptcies among regular companies without the ESOP. So, in fact, what that's telling us is that ESOPs are actually, and employee ownership through ESOPs is actually at its best, is its most valuable when the company is really challenged. Because then employees really are loyal to their company. After all, they own a piece of it. They really care about it. It's their baby. And they're not going to abandon it. They're not going to jump ship. Um, they're going to do whatever it takes to save this thing. They're willing to maybe take a, you know, a pay cut for, for several months uh, because it's saving their own company. Uh, so they really pull together. So the track record is really strong. And as I say, there's, there's actual data from research studies that really substantiate that. So uh, it, they just really shine um, when things are tough. So we have Martin Stavis, who's the director of the Beister Institute. And, and several times throughout the interview today here on Critical Mass Radio Show, you have, you have cited research and, and science. And I, I need to ask you, these are unbiased surveys, right? They're not they're not constructed by an, some ESOP association somewhere and designed to create exactly. information favorable to the model. This is not studies that, that we do. These are university academics who are doing it. You know, rigorous uh, you know scientific collection of data and analysis of that data, um, and they're just interested in finding the real results. Uh, so they're they're peer reviewed. You know, other other experts review their studies and challenge to see whether there's been cut in any corners or anything like that. So these studies are really rigorous. Okay, and we're going to give out the website and stuff at the end. And so if people are interested in getting access to this type of research. If they contact the Beister Institute, I'm sure you guys are willing to help them find this these studies. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. You know, um, 
I've also heard that ESOPs can be a deterrent. If you're if you're up and running as an ESOP and you go to sell your business or use another vehicle or maybe you want to buy a business and bring it into yours, th- does the fact that it's an ESOP complicate or in a negative way decisions that the on- the ongoing leadership team might make relative to, you know, acquiring other companies or maybe even selling their company to a strategic investor for a premium? Right. Well, we can look at each of those separately. Uh, the first question that often comes up is an owner says, you know, this sounds great because uh, one of the great things about an ESOP is that it allows an owner to take some of the money off the table without giving up the entire company. You know, lots of entrepreneurs out there say, you know, I'm reaching an age where it'd be nice to not have to work quite so hard anymore and be able to, you know, work four days a week or get home at five o'clock every day or, or finally take my wife in that big excursion to Europe for four weeks. I've never felt like I could you know, leave the place for four weeks in a row to fall apart while I'm gone. But if I sell a big chunk to my employees, uh, uh, they'll be able to, they'll, you know, be ready to mine the store for me because it's now theirs and they take care of things and that'll be great. But they raise this concern that if I sell 30, 40, 50% of something to employees, what if a couple of years later we get some phenomenal offer from an outside buyer who offers me you know, two, three times whatever I thought the company was worth? Am I now stuck with this ESOP thing? Am I going to be unable to sell the company? And that's certainly a very reasonable question to ask about. And the answer is that it's really not much of a problem. There's a minor few wrinkles you go through, but essentially the ESOP is just another shareholder. So somebody offers a great price, you know, hey, we had this appraisal for the ESOP, and they said it was worth 10 bucks a share. Now somebody's out there offering 25 30 bucks. you know, let's sell it. Well, the ESOP, which is uh, controlled by a trustee that the company appoints, the trustee's probably going to say, wow. That's great. That's my job is to maximize the value of this ESOP for employees, and I'm getting it double, tripled overnight. But that's kind of a no-brainer. So uh, you get a great offer like that, it's not going to impede things at all. The ESOP is just like another investor who's going to sell along with you. So really not a problem at all. The flip side is what if you have an ESOP, you say, rather than to sell, what if we want to expand the company? We want to do an acquisition of another company. Of course, the great thing that we touched on very briefly is that when a company ends up being owned fully by the ESOP, that company can actually operate, and people are going to think they're mishearing because it sounds unbelievable. That company becomes a completely tax-exempt business. It's still a for-profit business, but it pays no income taxes, no matter how much profit it makes. It pay, it's just nothing gets paid in taxes. An amazing deal. Uh, but the result is that there are a lot of companies that are starting to take that formulation, many, probably well over a 1,000, several thousand probably, of these companies that are 100% ESOP-owned and therefore tax-exempt. They're generating lots of cash because uh, so little of it goes, because none of it goes off to taxes. These companies are doing lots of acquisitions. So this is becoming a regularly practiced area, happening almost routinely. I'm on the board of directors of a company that has that, been that way, uh, ESOP-owned, for about eight or nine years now. And that time they've done four pretty major acquisitions, and they've just got it down to a routine now. They do their due diligence, and they just, uh, they've grown from about 150 people when I joined them to about 400 employees now at this point. You know, Martin, you, um, you, you, you're doing a great job um, responding to um, the questions, and, and, which leads me to my final question for you to hear today. If this idea of an ESOP is so great, why are only 10% of the U.S. businesses in ESOP? I mean, it's been around since the, the mid-70s. You know, why is it such a low concentration if it's such a great exit strategy for the primary owner and it, it has this recession-proof quality to it? I mean, what are we missing here? Well, part of it is that it's starting to change a lot. The word is getting out, and that's really the, the key, is that getting the word out. It's been a well-kept secret for just a very, very long time. There's a, a very, very well-established uh, industry of, uh, you know, they call themselves M&A or investment bankers or business brokers, whatever, that uh, sell companies. Those people had never really figured out a way that they could uh, – make a lot of money through the ESOP route since they didn't understand ESOP, so they felt that it was competing with what they did. So they tried to you know, discourage the idea and not talk about it, so it was pretty hard to get the word out through regular sort of channels of where somebody might go to. For some reason, for a long time in the CPA community, seemed to take a different view uh, you know, or pretty negative view of it uh, for no really sensible reason. That's really coming around. CPAs are sort of coming around in droves now saying, wow, this is actually a pretty pretty tremendous idea. So we're seeing a real sea change in that, but it took quite a while to get here to this point simply because there was such a small number of people uh, sort of uh, who were there to help and, and encourage the idea. It was just a well-kept secret. Okay, and um, 
If someone would like more information, and I cannot endorse contacting the Beister Institute strongly enough from an academic and a and a education perspective, as well as a concept knowledge competency down there with the with the team that you've assembled, how do they find you online? Where, where do you go to find more information about Beister? The most practical way to do it is simply to Google Beister Institute. So that's B E Y S T E R. Uh, Institute, and that should lead to us. Our actual email address is through the university. It's it's www.rady.ucsd/bister. Uh, but if that's too hard to follow, you can, uh, as I say, just Google Bister Institute as long as you get that spelled right. Okay. Y S T E R. Yeah, I think if you probably typed in E S O P Bister in some derivative, it's going to come up to you guys too That'll because come to us because your, well, your national know. footprint. Well, you know. I'm going to have you back um, at some point in the future because uh, w- one area that I would like to get into, you've done a great job, I think, answering these questions. One question I didn't have that I, I would like to get into with you is kind of the the uses and needs of cash in an ESOP because I think that's an area where people who are considering ESOP need to have a, a, a good understanding of how that business model maybe differs from another model relative to the requirements for cash relative to the ESOP. And would you be willing to come back and have a, a more thorough conversation on that aspect of it in the future? Be very happy to, Rick, definitely. Okay. Well, thank you, Martin Stabas. You're a good friend of the program, uh, a great educator. I, I, I learn so much each time we get a chance to get together. I appreciate you being a member of our community here and a friend of the program. Thank you. Thanks very much, Rick. My pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take another commercial break, and then Bo Harmon, who is co-founder of Do It For The Kids, is going to come in. We're going to talk about his organization, Do It For The Kids, and an event that they have planned uh, coming up, which if you like stand-up paddling, you are going to be interested in hearing about this conversation. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back in less than three minutes with Bo Harmon. Richard Franzi is the author of two popular business books for CEOs. His first book, Critical Mass, The Ten Explosive Powers of CEO Peer Groups, was the first book ever written on the secret value of CEO peer groups. His second book, now with newly updated information, is Critical Mass, The Power of CEO Guiding Principles. Richard's books contain powerful information to help CEOs running middle market companies gain valuable insight to improve their decision-making skills. Richard's books are available as paperbacks or Kindle versions from Amazon.com. To find them, type Richard Franzi in the search box. This holiday, there's the kind of gift card you give out, then there's the kind of gift card that gives back. With 10C's charitable giving cards, your company can give the gift of giving to employees, clients, friends, anyone you like. They, in turn, can use the card to make a donation to any local or national 501c3 charity of choice, while your company enjoys a tax deduction. Doing good is in the cards. 10C charitable giving cards. Call 714-953-5757 or visit 10C.org. I just want to share with you my experience as a member of Center Club. Many of you know that I've been a member of Center Club for over the past five years. I hold my monthly CEO peer group meetings there, my annual executive conference with 100-plus attendees, and my daily business meetings at the club. I've found the staff to be professional and courteous. My guests enjoy meeting at Center Club with its newly remodeled meeting rooms, dining rooms, and common areas. If you're looking for a place to conduct meetings, host events, or meet some of Orange County's most successful business leaders, then joining Center Club in Costa Mesa may be the answer. For more information regarding membership, private events, and other activities at Center Club, please visit their website, which is www.center-club.com. All right, welcome to the second half of the Critical Mass radio show. As promised, Bo Harmon, co-founder of Do It For The Kids, is in the studio. Bo, welcome to the program. Good afternoon. There we go. Glad to be here. It's live radio, baby. It's good to have you here. I'm really glad that you reached out, and I've learned a little bit about your uh, organization that you and your partner Eli have started, but tell us a little bit about Do It For The Kids. Sure. So Do It For The Kids is an organization we came up with uh, not too long ago, really with the mission to help children in need. Eli and I kind of organically came up with this idea and really look forward to sort of seeing it through over the years. When you say children in need, was there a precipitating event? I mean, what what caused you two to say, hey, we could make a difference in this area? Sure. Uh, you know, story probably goes back to when I was 15. Um, just me personally, I had a pretty significant head injury. I was skateboarding down a hill without a helmet on and ended up 
ended up in the, the concrete. I was in and out of consciousness till I got to the hospital. Um, ended up becoming not only unconscious, but I stopped breathing. Wow. At which point they put a uh, ventilator into my lungs to breathe for me. They did an emergency brain surgery. I spent two weeks in a coma and uh, miraculously came through all that as a normal you know, 15-year-old kid. Um, had to learn how to walk again. Um, definitely a traumatic experience, but really made me realize that my life was really only here today because of other people. Right. And so I had a philanthropic cause after that to go out and educate kids about helmet safety. And through my high school career, really put a lot of effort into making a difference. And then I went off to college. Then I started a business. And, you know, for probably almost the last 10 years have been focused on me. And so Eli and I got together and we started uh, just doing activities to get into good shape. Um, we ended up stand up paddle boarding a couple days in a row and we realized that we could we could take these boards pretty far and we're surfers we're not necessarily paddle boarders but okay. wanted to try something new as just a means to stay in shape and one day we said you know why don't why don't we stand up paddleboard all the way to Catalina get out of town and uh, we grew up in Laguna Beach we'd stared at Catalina our entire lives and I think as a child always wondered you know if we had to could we get there on our own you know on our own accord and so you know, the next day we said, well, if we're really going to do this paddle, we should, we should do it for a cause. And I said, well, I really want to do it for the kids. You know, that's who I'd want to help. If I was going to focus my nonprofit efforts back on something, uh-huh. I want to help children in need. And Eli was right there with me. He says, that sounds great. And, uh, so then we realized, well, if we're going to stand up paddle, what could our paddle symbolize in terms of helping children? And more children die by disease of anything, uh, excuse me, more children die by cancer than any other disease or any other cause in this country. Hmm. And so we realized if we were going to do it for the kids, maybe we could start there, do it for the you know kids that are battling cancer. And so Stand Up for Cancer was born. Okay. So Stand Up for Cancer is a, is a, is a part of Do It for the Kids? Right. So what we realized is we wanted to be able to help more kids than just kids that were afflicted with cancer. Okay. We wanted something that over the years we could be in different you know, go in different directions, but ultimately helping children. Uh-huh. And so do it for the kids will be our parent company. Okay. You know, we're right now in the process of turning that into a nonprofit. Okay. Um, we just filed with the state a couple of months ago. So it's about a six to 12 month process to get sure. it all approved. And then stand up for cancer is really our flagship first effort okay. presented by do it for the kids, um, focusing solely on raising money to help children that are afflicted by cancer. So, so I, after college, I heard you said you turned your focus to being an entrepreneur. Just briefly, what business are you in? I went into the financial service world. Okay. Uh, I work for an investment advisor. So okay. I'm an investment advisor representative working with individuals and business owners on what to do with their money. Okay. Well, that's important. Can you share who it is? Our firm's called Capstone Partners. Oh, sure. I'm familiar with Capstone financial Partners. Financial and insurance services here in Newport Beach. Okay. Um, we're also affiliated with Mass Mutual Financial Group. Sure. Oh, okay, excellent. Well, I, I, I've heard the firm. I didn't realize you were there. It's a good good organization. Appreciate that. All right, you're welcome. So um, let's talk about, and by the way, I'm talking with Bo Harmon. We're talking about two things. One, his his newly minted nonprofit called Do It For The Kids, and their focused event and organization, Stand Up For Cancer, which is a paddleboarding event. So how do you describe this, Do It For The Kids, StandUpForCancer.org, in a sentence or two? Sure. Uh, really helping children in need. And uh, with cancer being the number one killer uh, of children by disease in this country, we figured we could take on an epic challenge that would symbolize the battle that these kids have to go through. And so when we're you know halfway across the channel and we want to turn back and we really don't have a choice either to give up or to succeed, we just think about the kids and say, you know, they don't really have a choice either. So right. we're going to battle the elements and get to the other side just as they have no other choice but to battle through and, and get through their treatment. So what have you found, Bo, as 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 you're out now telling people you're here today on the radio show, but you're you're talking to other business leaders, et cetera, in, in Orange County. How are people responding to your philanthropic idea? You know, I, I think the fact that it's something new, something fresh, um, is very timely and appropriate. I don't know. When we, when we tell people the story of how it all came about, it seems very apparent and very organic as to why we're doing what we're doing. Okay. And so I felt like um, the response has been tremendous. You know, people want to get on board. And, and one thing I think that's been unique that I didn't necessarily see coming but seems to be the direction we're going is the younger generation is, I think, a lot more inclined to give back um, just from a mentality standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so I found a lot of young professionals that are looking for an outlet, that are looking for an avenue, and they've really identified with what they're doing, kind of stuck their hand up and said, 
what can I do? You know, whatever you need, I'd love to give it to you. And mm. uh, the support has just been really tremendous from a younger generation that I think was just maybe a little bit more of a surprise. Right. That's great. Uh, and I, I share, I believe you I agree with your philosophy I, and observation. I believe millennials are more hardwired towards personal giving, right? Uh, not just financial giving, but to actually get involved in, in the cause at a more personal level than maybe their parents were. Definitely. Their parents did great work by making contributions, which are really important. And so let's, let's talk about contributions a little bit. Um, where does the money come from and where is it going relative to your stand up for cancer? Sure. So until we're a legitimate 501c3 nonprofit, um, we got to be careful handling funds because we okay. want people that are donating to get a tax deduction. Right. And so what we did first was try to find a charity that, that matched our mission. And we really wanted to see dollars going to treatment, going to actually helping children, um, not just on the research side. Uh, what we learned is that research and clinical trials are kind of one and the same with okay. childhood cancer. All right. And so we found an organization, the Pediatric Cancer Research Foundation, phenomenal group um, over the last 20 years has done tremendous things to make a difference in this space. And so what we did is we went and found an organization like that to partner with. Okay. So if you go on our website, standupforcancer.org, you can click donate now and it'll take you to a link that goes directly to their website or at least directly to their bank account. So if you make a donation online, 100% goes right to the Pediatric Cancer Research Foundation. Everybody gets a tax deduction and we know in our hearts that those dollars are going to the right place. Mm-hmm. So that's great. And, and Jerry Wilson has been on our show a couple times. She's the executive director uh, of, of the Pediatric Cancer Research. Uh, She's wonderful. She is wonderful. And their cause is wonderful. Matter of fact, she brought Rod Carew in here earlier this year to talk about his golf outing, which was a, which was a pleasure to talk about such fine work that he's doing and, and to meet somebody like that. How do you start an event to raise money for children with cancer? I mean, how, how did you pick stand-up paddle boarding? And t- tell me why that was the right metaphor, if you will, for raising money? I wish I had a, a golden answer for you. Okay. Um, I'll wait. You know, yeah, right. R- realistically, we kind of just came up with this because we wanted to take on a challenge. And we realized that if we were going to take this on, it, it, it could be so much bigger than just us. And so it was fitting, I think, in our minds to say, hey, this is our challenge. If we want to help kids, what's one of the biggest challenges that are facing them? And with childhood cancer being you know, the number one killer by disease in this country, we felt like that would be a great symbolism to try to run with. And it just took an idea. It took a vision. And now we're sitting here doing our best to execute. Okay. So um, we have about a minute until the commercial break. So I think it wouldn't be fair for me to – I'd like to get into the actual – paddleboarding experience. So, Paul, why don't we take an early break here on Critical Mass Radio Show. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, don't go anywhere because we're going we're gonna to explore this concept of paddleboarding, the Catalina, and raising money for kids with cancer. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Bo Harmon after these words from our sponsors. Richard Franzi is a highly sought-after keynote speaker on topics of interest to CEOs of middle firms across North America. Richard's talks include Killing Cats Leads to Rats, a fascinating look at how unintended consequences of CEOs' decisions impact their firm's performance. Your Gray Matter Matters, which explores how a CEO's mindset can differentiate a middle market firm and define its culture. Richard delivers talks to a variety of audiences, ranging from executive team retreats to keynotes in front of hundreds of CEOs. To learn more about his talks, visit criticalmassforbusiness.com and select the contact page or call 949-887-4104. Wow. Marketing predictions are out for 2015, and marketing success is changing. Did you know that Google is now actively tracking your business and personal brand and online reputation? Online and offline marketing has changed. Google is driving more than 85% of your traffic. And if your brand is inconsistent or has poor mobile usability, your rankings and traffic can suffer in 2015. To learn how your business is currently viewed and what can be done to improve your brand's visibility and authority, Contact SunUp Group for a free marketing analysis. It could be a business game changer. Visit www.sunupgroup.com today 
or call 877-609-3840, extension 700. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. Welcome back to this edition of Critical Mass Radio Show. I am your host, Rick Franzi. Bo Harmon is our guest for this segment, and we're talking about his organizations, Do It for the Kids and StandUpForCancer.org. Before we get back to the interview, I'd just like to let you know, if you happen to be listening to the show today via iTunes, or you think you're going to start listening to this live stream via iTunes as a podcast, you can subscribe to it. Just type in Critical Mass Radio Show, and you'll get our weekly updates. But I would ask you to maybe take a minute and write a review within your favorite podcasting software for our radio show. This is a powerful way for you to help us grow our audience of business executives. It is really a great favor that I ask and one that I would greatly appreciate if you did it. Um, it, We have learned here on the community radio station that um, a reasonable number of positive reviews can really make a difference in the availability and the reach that we have on the podcast. So I would ask if you're an iTunes uh, person, if you could write a review or in your other software, whether it be Stitcher, Spreaker, or whatever software you're using, if you could give us a positive review, it will expand our reach into a community, and I would be greatly appreciative of that fact. All right, let's get back and talk with Bo Harmon. All right, so when is the event? November 7th. Okay, and and set this up for me. So, so I see in November, I see two guys... On standard paddle boards? Yes. Yeah, so on November 6th, okay. we'll, uh, we'll get on a 35-foot boat. Okay. Uh, we'll drive on the boat across the channel. Okay. Uh, we'll anchor just off the shore um, in the Twin Harbor area on sort of the, uh, I guess it's more the north side of the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to wake up before the sun gets up, and we'll probably be paddling by 5 a.m. Okay. So you're coming from Catalina back to the mainland. Right. And, and there's a... Basically, you want to follow the deepest part of the ocean because that's where the water is going to flow. Okay. We want to ride that current the best that we can. Okay. Um, we've got our eyes right now out on the uh, the surf forecast. They haven't quite predicted what the swell is going to be like that day. Um, we still don't know exactly how the wind's going to be, but everything depends on basically the wind. If the wind's behind us or calm, it'll be a much much less of a challenge, I suppose. Uh, if the wind's in our face or rough, it can be pretty much near impossible. Um, we actually had some training sessions where we went nine miles upwind, you know, against the current. It took us about four and a half hours. And another day we went 12 miles with no wind and it took us three hours. Okay. So, you know, the weather, the conditions are really what's going to determine how long it's going to take. Uh, our prediction is it's going to be about a seven or eight mile, seven or eight hour paddle. Okay. And we should end up somewhere between, you know, Long Beach and Newport Beach. Wow. And you're going to be paddling together, right? You, get, I mean, how close would you expect that you, you and Eli will stay to each other? Um, probably within a couple hundred yards. Okay. So always in sight of each other. De- definitely. Especially with, you know, tankers and stuff that are out there. If, God forbid, we have an emergency situation when we need to get back in our boat and get out of the way of a big tanker, uh-huh. we need to make sure we're close enough together to do that. Okay. Um, we've also been training together, trying to get sort of in tune with one another so that we're going at the same pace. Uh-huh. Yeah. And just... Being and how far is the distance from Catalina to the mainland? You know, we're we're still trying to figure out exactly what that is. You know, the internet's telling us it's 26 miles. Um, ever since we grew up, everyone always said it's 26 miles. I'll tell you what, though, when you look on a map, it looks like it's going to be more like 30 miles by the time we ride the current and go where we're going. Okay, but um, somewhere between 25 and 30 miles. So, I would say. So, have you found people who are knowledgeable in this area who can give you advice for whatever reason they have a, they're a sailor or whatever it might be, but they're able to help you understand and navigate the challenges that are inherent with this? Yeah, and we're still um, actively seeking you okay. know more advice at all times. Uh, I think our first kind of aha moment was actually Eli was out on a yacht uh, with some with like a, fr- a friend of his and and some other folks, and the captain. Uh, shared with him a nautical map. And that's when we realized that in order for us to paddle, we actually have to follow this channel. And before, we were targeting going from the north end of the island straight to Palos Verdes, because that's the shortest distance, if you look on a map. Okay. 
But what we found out is if we went that way, we'd be fighting the current the entire time versus if you head towards Palos Verdes and ride the current, it's going to pull you in towards Seal Beach, Newport Beach. Okay. And so that was sort of our first aha. Um, talked to a couple of people that have paddled it. They do an annual uh, Catalina paddle race. Okay. Uh, prone paddle. Okay. Where you lay down and you you know go on your knees and you paddle. Uh, ex-lifeguard friend of mine, Steve Reinch. Uh, he's paddled it several times on his own and you know he gave me the pep talk told me that we could do it it's definitely within our power okay but uh you know just make sure you got a boat out there is what he said okay so do you have the boat arranged yeah so we have a boat uh 35 foot boat um we also have some other people that are talking about trying to come out and meet us but we definitely have our safety boat uh, that'll follow us the whole time and right now we're thinking Based on our training, right around 10 miles is where our bodies start to get more hungry and thirsty than anything else. Okay. Granted, you're tired. It's it's not easy, but around 10 miles is when we need more nutrients. We need more energy. And so we're thinking we're going to go 10 miles right off the bat, stop, have a meal, water. Our goal is to stay on the board so we won't actually leave the boards while we're eating this stuff. Maybe take 15, 20 minutes to rehydrate, refuel, uh-huh. paddle another 10 miles, same thing, rehydrate, refuel paddle the last 10 miles and get there do you know at what point in the trip is the most um where you have to where the sea lane is where you have to i mean how far out are you how far away from catalina in the journey are you when you're pretty much right smack in the middle okay oh nice yeah so you know right when you're probably uh hitting that wall is when you really got to start moving right um we hope by leaving in the morning you know if, if we're an hour ahead of daylight you know that's only going to let us go maybe four four miles or so four to five miles if we're getting a good pace uh-huh. um i think that far off to sea we're not quite in the sea lane yet so okay. hopefully by the time sun comes up you know we'll we'll be entering the sea lane um and get through that as quickly as we can wow we're talking with bo Harmon. we're talking about what he and his partner eli in the nonprofit that they've started do it for kids what's eli's last name Visole. Visole. okay uh, they're paddling from catalina back to some destination here on the mainland uh how do people help this how how are you raising how do you raise money now doing this uh you know if people want to get on board they can go to our website uh, ha, 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 ha. get on board paddleboard oh, right, there uh, you yeah, yeah, you're so witty i didn't even realize how funny sure. i could be <laughs> i did you go to www.standupforcancer all words okay dot org um, you can click on there and donate. If you go to our contact, uh, there's an email address on there, some contact information. You can reach out to us directly. We're looking for sponsorships. We're looking for donors. Um, looking for people that have boats that want to come out and cheer us on. Yes, it's kind of an experience, right? Yeah, and then also because Do It For The Kids is the bigger idea. You know, yes. there's people out there that want to get on board with an organization. They need a cause that they've been looking to identify with. Reach out to us. Let us know. We'd love to have you on board. And the last channel is you can go on Instagram, Do It For The Kids, Inc., I think it's do it for the kids. Inc. Okay. is our uh, Instagram name if you want to follow us online. Okay, and um, is there going to be a landing part? I mean, it's kind of hard because you don't know where you're going to land, huh? But how, how do you... Right. So right now we're trying to finalize a location for two weeks after November 21st, and we're going to have um, a, a good friend of ours, Cyrus Polk. He's a photographer. Um, he's got some drones and whatnot, and Get so out of he's going to film with drones and everything else our paddle. Okay. And then two weeks after that, the plan is to have you know a silent auction and oh, wow. sort of a party. We've got a beer sponsor, a Laguna Beach Brewing Company. Okay. Let's get a little shout out. Yeah. Um, we also have a coconut water sponsor. Cabo Chips is going to be sponsoring us, um, meaning we should have some some good stuff for the donors to come and enjoy. We've got some art that's being donated um, by Sean Thomas and Pierce Meehan, and uh, right now just trying to get more people involved for that. But the idea would be to have a big movie of what we did, yeah. and that's where we're going to have that, okay. that celebration because, quite frankly, when we hit the, the beach, um, put me in the van and take me home. Right. I don't think I'm going to be ready for a party. Right. And, and when is the event? November 7th and November 21st would be our uh, our event. Okay. November 7th and 21st. And all this information is available on the website? Yes. And this website is again? www.standupforcanceralwords.org. And so this is... This is your first fundraising activity with more to follow, it sounds like. This is definitely the tip of the iceberg. Um, You know, this is our first opportunity to to get something out there. In fact, what we're thinking ahead for is, you know, what are we going to do next? Sure. Got to be thinking ahead. Because I think this idea was pretty fresh. You know, people liked that it hadn't really been done before. I mean, people have paddled this channel, but nobody's really done it, I think, the same way that we're doing it. Right. So... You know, what What else could we be doing? Um, one thing we were working on is I met a pastor recently, and he said he had about 50 kids in his church out in San Bernardino. None of them have ever gone surfing. 
And I said, well, we got to change that. Mm. And so we're doing, um, we had to postpone it, but we're, we're going to do a Saturday one day surf camp for okay. uh, these kids from San Bernardino that have never surfed before. And Eli, you know, works with a gentleman named Sly Dog. He runs Sly Dog Surf Camp in Laguna Beach. And uh, he's been doing it every summer. And so he's helped sponsor us with some boards. Mm-hmm. And so when the kids come down, we'll have a full one-day surf camp with volunteers to get these kids up on some boards. Well, that's excellent. Thank you for, do- for doing that. Any last question? Maybe it's not appropriate, but from the people that have paddle, paddled from Catalina Inn, any concern about marine life like sharks? You know, they're out there. Um, no doubt it's their ocean. Um, Eli and I have always said the ocean always wins. Okay. But to be quite honest, uh, sharks or marine life are probably not our biggest concern. The wind and the sun are probably two things to be more worried about. Okay. Um, currents, you know, swell and things of that nature. But uh, sharks don't really want to eat 14-foot carbon fiber paddle boards. I wouldn't think so. Um, you know, I think if my feet were hanging off the bottom, I'd be a little bit more worried. Okay. But uh, I'm more worried about wearing enough sunscreen and uh, and staying out of the wind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope the weather cooperates for you, Bo. Yeah, thank you. Uh, on behalf of the Critical Mass community, thanks for coming in today, being a friend of the program. I think what you and Eli are doing uh, is, is great and amazing. And I hope that being here on Critical Mass Radio Show helps give a little bit of a, a push in a positive direction for your newly minted nonprofits. We really appreciate it. www.standupforcancer.org or uh, doitforthekids.inc on Instagram. And uh, look forward to uh, the possibilities. Okay. Yeah. Keep me informed on the uh, 21st. Maybe uh, my wife and I come by. I'd love to see the video of what you guys accomplished. That'd be wonderful. All right. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this show is coming to a close. It's brought to you by our great advertisers, Center Club, Decision Toolbox, MBN Design, Sun Up Group, and, of course, we support various Orange County nonprofits, as you just heard from the interview. Our fantastic engineer today was Paul Roberts. Our producer is Joan Park, and I am your host, Rick Franzi. If you'd like to learn more about what I do with Critical Mass for Business and the CEO peer groups that I lead, or maybe you want to be a future guest or advertise on the program, all that's available. Just check us out at Critical Mass 4, which is spelled F-O-R, business.com. And until the next show, I hope all of your business decisions will move your company in a positive direction. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show. Focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi. 